So in today's passage, Jesus is going to tell us what we must do to inherit eternal life. And when you stop and think about that, it's clear there is nothing more important. Think about eternal life. Jesus is very clear in his teaching that every single one of us in this room, we're going to be each consciously existing forever. You are going to live forever. That's a long, long time. And Jesus was also very clear that every one of us will either be inheriting eternal life, which means the joy of knowing God in the new heavens and the new earth with all those who have been saved through Jesus, men and women from every nation, tongue, and tribe. We will either be inheriting eternal life or we'll be inheriting the eternal punishment of hell. So there is nothing more important than finding out what we must do to inherit eternal life. What do we need to do? And in Luke 18, 18 through 30, a rich ruler, political figure, probably connected politically, a rich ruler asks Jesus how to inherit eternal life, and Jesus tells him. So let's read. Start with verse 18. I'll read down through verse 30, and then we'll go back through and work through it a section at a time. Verse 18. And a ruler asked him, asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. We're going to come back to that in a moment. Then Jesus goes on, You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And this man said, the rich ruler said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he, the rich ruler, heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he'd become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we've left our homes and followed you. And he, Jesus, said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers, or parents, or children, for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. Amazing passage. 
So a wealthy political leader, ruler, comes to Jesus. He calls Jesus a good teacher and asks what he must do to inherit eternal life. But before Jesus answers his question about inheriting eternal life, Jesus talks about his own goodness. So why? Why does Jesus start with his own goodness? Read verses 18 and 19 again to see how he does that. A ruler asked him, good teacher, there's that word good, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, when Jesus says, why do you call me good? What is he saying? There's two very different ways we could take this. We could take this as Jesus saying, why do you call me good? I'm not good. Only God's good. We could think that's what Jesus is saying, but there are two huge problems with taking it that way. One is, anybody who reads the Gospels is going to see, Jesus is good. Oh, is he good. Healing the sick, freeing people from demonic powers, speaking the truth, the plain, unvarnished truth, no matter what the cost no matter what his audience thinks, he just lays it out because he loves us. And he cares for women. He cares for widows. I'm always touched by the, there's a funeral procession leading a town. A widow's only son has died. And Jesus raises him from the dead in his compassion for her. Jesus is clearly good. Oh, is he good? So there's no way he was saying, I'm not good. He was good. There's also no way that he was saying he's not God, because clearly he said he was God, as puzzling and as many questions as that might raise in your mind. Jesus in John 14 says, if you've seen me, you have seen God the Father. He says in John 8, before Abraham was, now, Abraham was thousands of years before Jesus. And Jesus is saying, before Abraham was, I am. So Jesus was existing thousands of years before, before Abraham was. And then Jesus uses the phrase, I am, which is the Old Testament way of describing God. I am who I am. So Jesus said. There was a time when Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And we know what he meant. Because immediately the crowd picked up stones ready to kill him because they said, he's making himself equal to God. That's blasphemy. They knew what he was saying. And God delivered him. And then I love the scene where Thomas, after the resurrection, falls at Jesus' feet and says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus does not correct him. Jesus welcomes his worship. So Jesus can't be saying here that he's not good because only God is good. That's impossible. So then what is he saying? He's not saying, why do you call me good? I'm not good. He's saying, why do you call me good? Think about what you're noticing in me. Think about the goodness that you've seen in me. Think about the perfect, flawless goodness that you have seen with your very eyes. No other human being has ever been perfectly good. 
Think about the good that you've seen in me. Why is it that you're calling me good? You're right. Think about that goodness. There's more there than you're seeing. Jesus was perfectly good. May God help us right now to see it and to feel it. This is so important. I mean, think about Jesus. Infinite power. Absolute authority. At the same time, so tender. So gentle. We sang this afternoon about him being the lion of Judah and and the lamb of God. That's our Jesus. Tender in love and in care and in gentleness. And Jesus was passionate about what? Not about piling up wealth for himself. Not about getting fame. Not about earthly comforts. I mean, read the Gospels. What was Jesus passionate about? He was passionate about helping us have the joy of knowing God. His life was poured out to bring that about. Why do I say poured out? It's because there's a huge barrier between us knowing God and having joy in knowing God forever. The barrier is our sin. We've each sinned so much that we need to be punished forever by God for our sin. But Jesus came, God the Father sent Jesus so that he would be punished for the sins of all who would trust him. So his passion, not for money, not for fame, not for earthly comforts, his passion for us to help us, to love us, sent him to the cross. Then he rose from the dead showing that his death had accomplished that so that everyone who trusts him will be forgiven and brought into the joy of knowing God. That was Jesus' single-minded passion. He was perfectly, flawlessly good. That's Jesus. So Jesus was urging this man, have you seen who I am? You're calling me good. Think about why. What have you noticed? Do you understand? I am good. I am God. That's the goodness that you've seen. So why does Jesus start with his own goodness? I think it's because seeing Jesus in his goodness, his perfect goodness, is a crucial part, an essential part of inheriting eternal life. It's an essential part of inheriting eternal life. We're going to see that more in a moment. That's why Jesus starts there. Look at what he says in Matthew 13, 44. We see here why it's a crucial part. I love this passage, Matthew 13, 44. It's a beautiful description of how someone inherits the kingdom. Matthew 13, 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. We've talked about this passage before because I like it so much. Picture, you're you're walking through a, a field and you stub your toe and all of a sudden you... There's this big, massive treasure chest. It's buried. There's a little corner picking out. You you can't dig it up. It's just too big. This is a massive, massive treasure. You can can see through some of the broken wood there. It's full of gold coins. It's just this huge treasure. Oh, my goodness. And, And you keep walking, and you notice that the field is for sale. It's for sale. And you call up the owner. How much? Ooh, that's like all that I've got. 
for joy over it, he sells all that he's got and buys the fields. That's the picture that's going on here. Sells all that he has to buy the fields. He notices, he sees, he feels that the treasure in the field is worth everything. That's why Jesus starts with joy in the treasure, with seeing his goodness, the joy of beholding Jesus, the joy of knowing this perfectly good God-man, Jesus Christ, is worth everything. And that's where it all starts, the joy of seeing that Jesus is the treasure, his authority, his power, his tenderness, his beauty, his majesty, his love, his holiness, to know Jesus, to worship Jesus, to trust Jesus, to have Jesus forever. He is the massive, incomparable treasure in the field worth, worth everything. That's why Jesus starts with his own goodness. In Jesus, we have forgiveness for our sins. In Jesus, we have progressive power over our own sin. And we have overflowing joy in his presence now and forever. That's why Jesus starts with his goodness. This is a crucial part of inheriting eternal life. That's why Jesus starts there. But now the ruler had also asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So how does Jesus answer that question? How does he answer the ruler's question? Verse 20. Look what he says. Jesus says to the man, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. So Jesus is saying the most natural way to take this verse is that to inherit eternal life, we must be people who don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, and so forth. Now that might puzzle you. It should puzzle you. You might be thinking, well, didn't Jesus say that we are not saved by our obedience? And that we are saved by faith alone? In him? Isn't that what Jesus said? Yes, it is. That's exactly what Jesus said. But Jesus also said that genuine faith in him, the faith that does save, will always produce obedience. It doesn't make us sinless or perfect, but it will produce change. So the way you can tell that your faith is genuine and saving is because there is change. You're not, you're not sinless, you're not perfect, but you are growing in obedience. Look at verse 21 of Matthew chapter 7. So Jesus is saying here, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. It's easy to say, Jesus is my Lord. It's another thing to submit to him as Lord. The test of whether we are genuinely trusting Jesus is whether we are submitting to Jesus as Lord. That's the test. Again, not sinless perfection. That doesn't happen until heaven, but growing obedience. That's the test. Now, let's be sure we're clear on what Jesus is and is not saying. He is not saying that we are saved by our obedience. 
Are we clear on that? That's what every other religion teaches. It's all wrong. We are not saved by our obedience. None of us can obey enough to make up for our sin. None of us can. You cannot do it. That's why what Jesus teaches is such amazing news. He did it. On the cross, friends, he did it. He paid for all the sins of everyone who will come to him, sinful, needy, who will come and trust him. I trust you. Forgive me. I trust you. Change me. I trust you to satisfy me. I'm coming with all of my needs. I trust you. Boom, forgiven. Change starts. Filling takes place. We're not saved by obeying so much. We're saved by trusting Jesus Christ. Are we clear? Church, this is huge. All the other religions teach, here's what you do to pay God back for your sin. You got to obey this much. You got to do these things. No, 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 no. Oh, on the last day, there's going to be people weeping for the lies they've been taught and that they've embraced. We cannot be saved by obeying enough. We are saved by trusting the one who did obey enough perfectly and died for our disobedience. We're saved by trusting him, seeing his goodness and trusting him. So don't misunderstand this. We're saved by faith, not by obedience. But our obedience shows that we have faith. It shows. That's the point of Luke 18, 20. Let's read it again. That's what Jesus is saying here. Verse 20, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. You know the commandments, and obedience to these commandments can show that someone has genuine faith. Verse 21, then he says, all these I've kept from my youth. Verse 21. So Jesus knows he's an outwardly moral person, but he's missing something. You can be outwardly moral, right, and not be trusting Jesus, right? Church, right? You can be outwardly moral. I mean, I was for years, I mean, outwardly, not inwardly, but outwardly, outwardly, and not be trusting Jesus. Jesus knows he's lacking what's most important. That's where he goes next, verse 22. When Jesus heard this, that he said, all these I've kept from my youth, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, one thing to inherit eternal life you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. You'll have treasure and come, follow me. I love thinking of how, how Jesus would have said that. But when he, the rich ruler, heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. So what was the one thing he still lacked? He was not trusting Jesus to be his all-satisfying treasure. If he was trusting Jesus to be his all-satisfying treasure, and if selling all his stuff would bring him Jesus, his all-satisfying treasure, sweet deal, sell it all. 
but because he was trusting money as his all-satisfying treasure? Why would he give up his all-satisfying treasure for something that wouldn't be his all-satisfying treasure? A crucial part of saving faith is trusting that Jesus Christ will satisfy your heart more than anything else. We're saved by faith alone. And faith means trusting him to forgive you, trusting that my righteousness can't save me, only his death on the cross can save me. And it means trusting that he's my all-satisfying treasure. I trust him. And if I trust him to be my all-satisfying treasure, I will love him more than anything else. Right? I mean, if you love money as your all-satisfying treasure, what are you going to love the most? Money. If you love fame as your all-satisfying treasure, what are you going to love the most? Fame. If you love popularity, <clears throat> excuse me, popularity. I might need a drink of water, hon. <clears throat> you see how that works. And if you trust Jesus as your all-satisfying treasure, what will you love the most? Jesus. You see that? That's how it works. <laughs> Look at what Matthew, <clears throat> Jesus says in Matthew 10.37. Here's what Jesus says. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Saving faith includes trusting Jesus as your all-satisfying treasure because when you do that, you will love him more than anything else, including father, mother, sister, brother. And Jesus wants us to love our fathers and our mothers and our sisters and our brothers, doesn't he? But oh, not more than him. Never, nothing more than him. That's what this man lacked. He didn't have saving faith because he wasn't trusting Jesus Christ as his all-satisfying treasure. And Jesus helps him to see this by calling him okay, sell everything and, and you can come with me. You'll have treasure in heaven and you can follow me. And he said, no thanks. I want my treasure, which is money. Now, does Jesus call us all to sell everything? It's a good question, right? I'm going to come back to this. Okay, there we go. He does not call us all to sell everything. We know that just by keeping reading in the Gospels. In the next chapter... Chapter 19, Zacchaeus, a rich tax collector, sells half of his stuff. And Jesus celebrates, today salvation has come to his house. Okay, well, what, 100% to this guy? 50%? That's not fair. It's not fair. Jesus knows what we need. He knew what the rich ruler needed to hear. And Zacchaeus was trusting Jesus as his all-satisfying treasure. It's clear. Jesus calls each of us to different things when it comes to finance. I mean, we're all called to give. We're all called to lean into lower standard of living, giving away more. But the exact contours of that will depend on his specific call in our lives. But what we all must do is trust that he is our prize. He is our aim. He is our hope. He is our treasure. He is our joy. We must love Jesus more than anything else. And friend, if you don't, you can't be sure you're saved. This is so, so important. 
Now, how can you tell if you love Jesus more than anything else? How can you tell? Here's a couple of questions that I ask myself often. See if you find them helpful. What do I think about the most when i am just got spare time? Where does my mind go? That's what I love the most. What do I enjoy talking about the most with people? That's what I love the most. What do I pursue the most for my joy? That's what I love the most. So if I'm thinking about Jesus, the most of my mind goes towards Jesus Christ. If I love talking about Jesus the most, if I'm seeking my joy in Jesus the most, then I'm loving Jesus the most. That's how we can, we can tell. We don't do it perfectly. We all battle. I find times, numerous times through the week, I'm, I'm running after this for my joy. I'm, I'm enjoying talking about like something I did yesterday more than talking about Jesus. We all struggle with that, right? Right? Yes, we do. So we're not perfect in this, but is the trend of my life, is the pattern of my life, Jesus, forgive me for pursuing this. I'm back. I, you're my joy. Here we go. Meet me. Fill me. Help me. You'll know that you have saving faith because you're trusting him as your all-satisfying treasure. But sadly, this rich ruler did not trust Jesus as his all-satisfying treasure. He did not love Jesus more than anything else. And unless something changed, he would not inherit eternal life, which is just heartbreaking to think about. Heartbreaking. So let's raise this next question. How can this rich ruler inherit eternal life? How? And Jesus answers that starting in verse 24. Jesus, seeing that he'd become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now, entering the kingdom of God is the exact same thing as inheriting eternal life. You can see by reading this passage, you'll see them interchanged here. Same topic. How do you inherit eternal life? How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. So can this rich ruler inherit eternal life? Is it possible? Jesus says it's difficult for those who are wealthy. Difficult. Now, he would also say it's difficult for those who are lustful, for those who are bitter, for those who are seeking revenge. All of us have other treasures we have pursued in our lives, right? It's difficult for everybody. It's not just for the wealthy. It's difficult for those who love fame more than Jesus, love sexual pleasure more than Jesus, love friends more than Jesus. To inherit eternal life, we must love Jesus more than anything else, and that's difficult for all of us, right? How difficult? Jesus tells us, verse 25, shocking statement. For it is easier, easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. <laughs> what? Now, you may have heard that there's a gate in the walls of Jerusalem called the eye of a needle with a very low threshold that a camel could get through if it lowered itself and humbled itself, it could still get through. There's no such gate. It's just not true. Um, it's just not. No, no Bible commentator says that that's true. 
That's not Jesus' point. So what is Jesus' point? Okay, well, think about a camel. We have lots of camels in this country, right? Camels are big. They're, they're big, okay? They're like big. And then think of the eye of a needle. The eye of a needle is small, okay? Get the picture? How difficult is it for a camel to get through the eye of a needle? Don't you? Jesus is just brilliant, isn't he? It's like, how difficult is that? That's like really, I'd say it's impossible, right? And Jesus says it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the crowds hear this, they're shocked. They're just stunned. Jesus is so clear and bold and loving. He wants us all to get this. Verse 26, those who heard it said, then who can be saved? Verse 27, but he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. It is possible with God. Jesus' point is that it's impossible for us to change our own hearts and be saved. Our sin is so strong. Your sin is so strong. My sin has been so strong that we cannot free ourselves from it. Love of money, love of comfort, love of entertainment, whatever it might be, so powerful. We cannot change our own hearts. But there's good news. What is impossible with people is possible with God. Look at Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. Such good news here. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. Who's doing the cleansing? He is. He does this. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. Who, who gave you a new heart? He did. He did this. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. If you ever felt like my heart is just so drawn towards this and that's it, I'm just hopeless. Nothing's going to change. I can't change my heart. Right. What's impossible with people is possible with God. Verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. We cannot change our own hearts, but God can. And God does. And how does he change our hearts? By helping us see Jesus' perfect goodness. We're back to the very first thing Jesus said. Helping us see the treasure in the field is a treasure. It's a big treasure. Worth a hundred times more than the rest of my stuff I've got. I'll gladly sell my piddly stuff to get that treasure. Absolutely. He helps us see the treasure. He helps you see Jesus. You see Jesus in his goodness, in his love, in his compassion, in his authority, in his power, in his nearness, in his reality. Listen, we have to understand the most glorious, valuable, beautiful, joy-giving reality in the universe is Jesus Christ, the God-man, because he is the radiance of the Father's glory. He is what the universe is about. And we need to bend our knee and say, yes, change my heart. Help me feel. Help me see this more clearly. And he will do it. He'll help us see the incomparable treasure in the field. He'll give us such joy in Jesus, such joy in Jesus Christ that 
we will love him more than anything. That's what happened to me. I was 17 years old. Been going to church all my life. Sunday morning, Sunday night, probably Wednesday night, maybe another time there, heard hundreds and hundreds of sermons. I agreed with all of it. And I would have said I was a Christian. I'd raised my hand numerous times, gone forward numerous times. But I did not love Jesus. Certainly not more than anything. And I'm not sure I loved him at all. I, I loved the beach. I loved surfing. I loved uh, sports, water polo, swimming. I loved trying to be popular. I loved trying to hang out with cute girls. I loved everything else. Did not love Jesus. I did not have saving faith. I was not trusting that Jesus Christ is my all-satisfying treasure. But God changed my heart. Friends, what is impossible with people is possible with God. He let me feel the, the emptiness of what I was pursuing one summer. It was frightening. Everything was going great in my life, and I was empty. And that made me think, okay, I've got to re-examine. So who is Jesus? And I saw a couple, two things especially. One is I saw the massive historical evidence for Jesus Christ, his life, his miracles, his death, his resurrection, massive historical evidence. I thought, this is true. And I saw also, as I read the Gospels, that I was not trusting him. I was not falling at his feet like Thomas, saying, my Lord and my God. He was not my treasure. And so one night, I prayed, put my trust in Jesus. Forgive me, Lord. Change me. It's impossible with me. It's possible with you. Do, the do, do what's impossible. Pour out your spirit. Pour out your presence. Show me Jesus. And that's what he did. He changed me. I'll never forget one night going to sleep, praying, worshiping, and God, God just poured his love into my heart. God's nearness was so real. Jesus' glory was so shining. I was just, I was just weeping with joy, 17 years old. Just all I wanted was Jesus. Just, I want Jesus now. I want Jesus forever. There's been ups and downs since then. We all know how that goes, right? That you never forget that first taste. I know where lasting full joy is to be found. I know where it is. Yes, I get distracted by numerous other things, but I know where true joy is. Have you tasted? Taste and see that the Lord is good. God changed my heart. Now think about this rich ruler. Imagine that instead of walking away sad, imagine that he would have fallen at Jesus' feet and said, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I need eternal life. I want eternal life. I want my money more than you. Help me. He would have left there walking and leaping and praising God. His heart would have been changed. He would have seen Jesus. He would have known he was completely forgiven. He would have seen the joy of Jesus start to change his desires, his heart. He would have been overflowingly filled with Jesus Christ's joy. And he would have inherited eternal life because he was trusting Jesus then as his all-satisfying joy. 
Now, this passage answers one more question. Will this be worth it? Sounds pretty costly here. We're talking about selling everything. That, that's a lot. Will this be worth it? You understand, I did say that not everybody's called to sell everything. You may be called to sell everything. But not everybody's called to sell everything. It's not who's better, who's worse. It's just different calls for each of us. But we each need to trust that Jesus Christ is our all-satisfying treasure. So will this be worth it? Imagine that this rich young ruler would have fallen at Jesus' feet. I believe, help man believe. His heart's changed. He sees Jesus. You're the treasure in the field. I see your perfect goodness. I want you now. I want you forever. I'll sell everything. Selling everything, no problem. It's gone. Cha-ching, sold. Okay, done. Would it have been worth it a week later? Two weeks later? And thinking of you turning from whatever you've loved the most, will it be worth it? Verses 28 to 30. Jesus has just said what is impossible with man is possible with God. And I think Peter at this point, he wants to say, that's true, it's possible. Our hearts have been changed. So verse 28, Peter said, see, we've left our homes and followed you. Our hearts have been changed. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. God had changed the disciples' hearts. They had seen Jesus' perfect goodness. They saw treasure in the field, massive, incomparable treasure. So they loved Jesus more than anything, and they gladly left their homes and their families. Temporarily, temporarily, to accompany Jesus on his mission during his time here on earth. And Jesus assures them that everyone who leaves anything for his sake will receive many times more in this present life and in eternity, eternal life, in the age to come. That does not mean that the disciples are going to receive many more wives or houses. Let's be clear here, okay? Monogamy, one man, one woman, that's God's plan. I love it. But it does mean that in Jesus they will have far more joy than any joy they've left for his sake. There's no comparison. There's no comparison. And they'll have that joy now, and they'll have that joy forever, because they will inherit eternal life. So, brothers and sisters, visitors, followers of Jesus, and those who are not yet followers of Jesus. See Jesus' perfect goodness. See his love, his tenderness, his power, his authority, his kindness, his sacrifice. See Jesus' perfect goodness. See that you can be forgiven, that you can be changed, that you can be filled with the joy you've been longing for all your life and turn from your sin and cry out to Jesus to forgive you, to change you, to fill you, to satisfy you. He will, and you'll have eternal life. Let's stand. I want to pray.
we join Thomas and we bow before you, Jesus Christ, and say, my Lord and my God. We say, my treasure, my joy. Show us all, Lord, everyone here, by the work of your Holy Spirit, open blind eyes, eyes of our hearts. Let us see, let us feel your perfect goodness, Jesus Christ. No human being is perfectly good. You alone, you alone. Help us see. Help us turn from everything else to you, to trust you. Thank you that when we do, you forgive us. You start to change us. You fill us with your love. You fill us with your joy. You are the treasure in the field. And you give us eternal life. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.